This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave. My name is Alexandra Helen Nicholas and once again it is a lady cave on air with myself, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood. Hello. 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 <laughs> very formal and posh there for my lady cave declaration. It's a very plummy lady cave. <laughs> Joining us behind the scenes tonight are Carl Chapman and as always our podcast producer Faith Everard for those of you listening after this here live broadcast. Tonight we have three very different movies but in their own ways equally intense Matt Spicer's drama comedy Ingrid Goes West Toshiro Matsumoto's 1969 masterpiece of Japanese cinema Funeral Parade of Roses but first up we look at Mexican director Amat Escalante's The Untamed winning the Winning the director the Silver Lion at Venice last year, The Untamer's Escalante's follow-up to his unparalleled 2013 Narco Wars crime thriller Haley, which garnered him the Best Director, director Award at Cannes that year. On the f- surface, these films seem as different as can be, but at their core, both use genre codes and conventions to place very real social and cultural dimensions of contemporary Mexican culture under the microscope in what are frequently uncomfortable but inescapably thought-provoking ways. The Untamed begins with with a shot of a floating asteroid and cuts to a confronting scene where a young woman is consensually penetrated by what looks like an octopus tentacle. We learn her name is Vero, who has been having these encounters with the alien sex squid since she was a girl and first stumbled across the isolated rural home of the Vegas, the creature's caretakers. With their encounters becoming increasingly violent, Vero is forced to cease her relationship with the copulating cephalopod, and so she tries to find it, and will um, discuss this pronoun further, I'm sure, someone new. This leads her to brother and sister Fabian and Ale, and Ale's husband Angel, and their two children, who are very cute. Ale is unaware that her gay brother that her gay brother Fabian and her seemingly homophobic husband are in fact having their own covert sexy times a secret whose revelation coincides with Vero's growing friendship with Fabian and Ale this is a devastating unforgettable movie less a horror film than a movie that utilizes aspects of horror to reveal important truths about violence against women and homophobic hate crimes that the director and many others have noted are rampant in Mexico right now and perhaps even other countries how did we go with the untamed my god sex squid <laughs> copulating cephalopod I actually I used a thesaurus to come up with that I know it's like I can't keep saying I can't keep saying alien sex squid I do love it boring I do love the way though no I, I don't think it ever gets boring, Alex. You can say alien sex Copulating cephalopod. Yeah, you Come can, on. You can say the, that. Try that. It's hard. It's difficult. Copulating cephalopod. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be 20 minutes of us just oh saying sex squid, huh? <laughs> well, it's, it kind of feels like that you, you're throwing out a spoiler with that, but it's right up front. It is right up it's front. The, it's the yeah. first scene or technically the second scene. It is. Um, it is. And I think this um, film, I mean, it really doesn't hold back in what it's presenting. I think we have almost three sex scenes uh, in in, ta- uh, in tandem. That doesn't make sense. In, in a trio of sex scenes right at the start. Um, so... Uh, I know that, Alex, you've had an event on Friday which I'd actually like to find out a bit more about because you got to talk to a critic who has um, who is actually Mexican descent, so probably has a better, um, uh, a better insight into this than any of us in here. But um, from, what I, from what I know, because the idea with Mexico, because we think, you know, the way Americans present, um, the American culture presents Mexico of, or, or Donald Trump, shall we say, rapists and 
and uh, drug lords, uh, it's actually quite a, um, a conservative culture, being a very, very um, highly religious Catholic culture, which is kind of across the whole of South Mexico America. Mexico City has gay marriage, though. Same-sex marriage is well, okay there. Wow, just, just that's a that whole <laughs> other story, isn't it? But, uh, yes, uh, so... So the thing is, though, that uh, I think the scenes that we're shown in this film, I think, play out in a way because they're really, really confronting gay sex. There's confronting sex scenes, you know. All of them. They're all confronting. So I think that um, they could play out locally in Mexico in a in a much different light to for what, even us to to watch them, us open minded Australians to watch them. But um, there was, I oh think, dear. I think there was <laughs> something about. Uh, uh, there, there was a Mexican. There was a headline in the newspaper in it that I think uh, really shows uh, the attitude towards the what what could be a, a homophobia that's quite prevalent in the culture. Um, and I can't remember what the headline was, but it was one of those great Herald Sun headlines, you know, that was full of sort of like fags killing, you know, like that kind of language that was put out in the headline, which give, gives an impression of, you know, how that um, how that that might play out in that culture. But um, I that's, think... That's apparently a specific reference to a specific hate crime. It was. So yeah, it was the, an the, actual headline. There was, I, mean, I don't know if it was an actual headline, oh, okay. but there was a very famous, um, horrendous homophobic hate crime in Mexico that um, inspired this film in part yeah. and also the, the, the murder of a woman. But um, the, and the way that both of the cover, that the press covered both of these stories inspired The Untamed. But I think mm. that it's much broader. I mean, I, I wrote about this film. Um, I discovered it through uh, Arrow Video in the UK. They asked me to write an essay for it. And I'm, I wasn't up to scratch on my contemporary Mexican politics, but I still engaged on a really profound level with this film. And I think mm. that's one of the things that's so powerful about it is it works as a political allegory, but also if that's not, if you're not kind of honed in on the specificities of, um, you know, Mexican social catastrophe, you know, the stuff that's going on in the narco wars and things like this at the moment, it still really works. It's still a great film. I mean, the film's dedicated to Andrzej Zulowski um, <laughs> and his film Possession, mm-hmm. which is also playing as a double. Um, I'll mention that later. But Cerise, I know that you're my fellow hmm. Zulowski Possession fan. How did you uh, go with The Untamed? Well, look, truth be told, um, I saw it during MIF. And when I say I saw it, I should say I saw some of it because I was so fatigued on the day that I was in a state of considerable delirium uh, and didn't catch all of it. Um, but what I did catch, uh, there are certain images that will remain indelible, much as um, certain images towards the culmination of a possession, um, uh, which I sh- perhaps shan't spoil for people given they have an opportunity to see that on a big screen. But just suffice it to say there's good reason that that film was a direct inspiration for this film, which just happens to have a sex squid in it. Um, it's... Uh, I, 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 I missed... I, you know, God knows how much I actually missed of the film. But it was certainly clear to me there was more going on than just shock tactics, much as in his previous film, Heli, which I mm. do remember all of. I, I was wide awake for all of that. And there was certain imagery of that which was extremely shocking, but um, not, not just for the sake of shock. I mean, I do remember in that film seeing someone's penis being set on fire um, mm. and as they, I think, hung suspended somewhere in a backwoods cabin. Um, you know, this is someone who knows how to make... Uh, to to communicate effect. Uh, I, I really find the two films of his I've seen, or I should say one and a half, really quite visceral in the way I've um, uh, received them. Um, 
It's not to say I felt exactly like I was undergoing some sort of sexual relation with a squid-type <laughs> creature whilst watching this, but I certainly felt all its slitheriness somehow that was transmitted. But there's yes, I, I do remember. The more you're talking about it, the more is coming back to mind too. Of of um, there, there were very clear homophobic undertones in the uh, undercurrents in the, in the film's narrative, as best I can recall. Was there perhaps a little bit of incest as well, or is that just a false impression I've come away with? Not no. that I know. Of. No. no, no, no. I think. No. That no, I or am I, I confusing that with Funeral Parade of Roses? Which we'll get to shortly. <laughs> the um, the, I mean, the homophobia really uh, is configured in one particular character, um, mm. and he's quite an extra. It's a really extraordinary performance. Mm-hmm. Um, the I mean, a lot of these performers, this is their first film. Um, the character of Angel, who's Ale's husband. Um, who is having a relationship with her brother on the sly while being a very vocal homophobe, um, could very easily, I think, collapse into the kind of villainous, cliche, thug figure. But he's really complicated in this film, not in a morally positive light. No. Um, there's never really a point that um, that he's considered a good guy. I mean, he's, he's presented as reprehensible. Um, but yeah, I think that the film kind of complicates. He's he's not a he's not a two dimensional character. None of these characters are. No, well, he's presented. He's very injured. He comes yeah, across there's, as there's very a speech, injured. There's a yeah. speech. There's a conversation. One of the only the only moment that we have with him that shows any kind of humanity is um, a post coital conversation with uh, Fabian um, about why he's a vegetarian. Yes, and in a, there's so yes. many little strange moments. I just this is one of my favourite films a- of the year. Like there's so many of these strange little moments that you know when you. T- tell people yeah it's a film about an alien sex squid you think that that's what you would talk about the most but there's these just these odd little moments these strange little conversations that just stay with you there's just a real longevity to the minutiae of this film it's just just exquisite filmmaking and really powerful and really i remember we discussed this with um tara judah tara needed a hug during the film festival Mm. and tara was really (laughs) upset she was like she really loved the film but she really disturbed her Mm. Um, it was. It, it's interesting because I watched it a, a, a second time before because um, I saw it as part of Myth as, as well, and I felt that there was levels of ambiguity in a good way, not in a bad way, when I first watched it. But then watching it a second time, it all seems so clear. Um, also, the it, it's really a play on uh, around desire and um, that idea of base instinct, that primal that really primal instinct in us. And it even plays out in the children, like the way the the little boy um, is allergic to chocolate but can't help himself but eats the chocolate. And the way Fab- Fabian, who, as the uncle, says to him, but did it taste good? Was I it think, good? I think that what, what you touch on there is yeah. exactly where the film's politics kicks in and what I love about this film and what I think happens with all filmmakers, not just genre filmmakers, TM, but filmmakers who play with genre or who experiment with genre, who are, which, which is what I think Escalante does. I don't think that this is a horror film. No, I agree. I think it's, yeah. a, fil- it's a social realist film that uses horror um, in a really clever allegorical way but um, if you don't know these reference points you're still not excluded from a really just cracker of a film experience Mm. Um, you know I mean I think at its heart are issues of consent Mm. um, issues of of violence um, and and spectatorship 
There's a scene, there's again one of these strange little nothing moments that really doesn't feed into the narrative. So it's certainly not a spoiler, but a body is discovered and the camera pulls back very close, uh, slowly. It's in a, a kind of rural, you know, this beautiful rural area. There's some water, these lush rolling hills, and the camera pulls back and reveals just sitting on a little hillside, there's a family almost like they're having like just watching, but it's, it's like this idyllic, almost like a constable painting. Like they've, they're having a little picnic lunch, just watching the police sort of, yeah. get, you know, take this dead corpse, take, you know, removing this body, just these bizarre um, treatments of of the perversity of spectatorship. And this, of course, feeds directly in to what's going on in Mexico at the moment, you know, the kind of everyday business of, of mass graves. And, yeah. um, and this is stuff that I absolutely have to give a heads up to um, the ACME panel that um, we did on Friday night. Um, I moderated it with uh, Spiro Economopoulos from the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and the, just the remarkable Cesar Albaran Torres, who's an academic at Swinburne University, but he was um, a film critic in Mexico for Cine Premier magazine, um, which is a huge magazine. Um, he's written on uh, Escalante's film Heli for Senses of Cinema and the Narco Wars recently, and it's definitely worth a read. It's just a great piece. Um, th- but the, the kind of local knowledge that he brought me to this film, just completely, I love the film anyway, and then hearing these things. There's an amazing animal orgy in this film. Yes. And what I That's didn't, incredible. it's just so memorable. It's yes. just a striking <laughs> image of just all these animals. Go- I've never seen lizards Rooting. do that. Just I know. going for it. The, the lizards were like twirling. Okay, do you, remember the, do you remember the dog with the little poofy hair? Yes. So that dog apparently is the only indigenous dog to Mexico. I can't remember its breed, but it's... Um, so a chihuahua, it, it's, chihuahua isn't a Mexican dog? It's not a chihuahua. Child. It's a specific kind of... Oh, sorry. No, this this particular dog is like yeah. this, this Aztec dog, but hipsters love it. It's got this real class <laughs> thing. Like it's got this real... So so lots of kind of cool That's Mexican fantastic. hipsters have this this kind of indigenous Aztec dog and they're that it's in that scene is like apparently it's like this sort of crucial potent political thing well that was like, more i didn't of those know that dogs. i thought it was just a dog with, <laughs> dog with poofy hair you know just amazing now i am rambling you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia Ingrid Goes West is the feature film directorial debut for screenwriter Matt Spicer, starring Parks and Recreation's Aubrey Plaza in the title role as a psychologically wobbly young lady with a tenuous grasp on the intersection of social media and the real world. After a nasty encounter with a woman she believed to be a close buddy, but in fact had just simply commented on one of Ingrid's Instagram posts, we discover that Ingrid has some background things that have happened that have made... <laughs> kind of explain this this shakiness. There's a story you'll find when you watch the film. I'm not going to tell you. Watch the film. My God. Moving to LA on a whim when the misreading of a vague social media contact by Elizabeth Olsen's Taylor um, as an acknowledgement of friendship, it all gets a bit single white female, but in a much funnier, although very dark way. Add to the mix Taylor's artist husband Ezra, played by Wyatt Russell, Taylor's scumbag brother Nikki, Billy Magnuson, and Ingrid's um, landlord Dan, played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., and relationships get what I think you would call on Facebook complicated. <laughs> Tell us what you guys thought of Ingrid Goes West. This um, it seems timely, uh, given a recent spate of uh, uh, editorials or at least op-ed columns out there, uh, considering the addictive, deliberately addictive properties of a lot of social media. How social media is generally engineered so that people uh, get little 
endorphin hits from seeking likes and uh, whatever likes are also known as across the various platforms. Do they used to be favs? Favs? Favs. I think they're all... On Twitter, they I think they're all likes favs. now. Are they all likes? I don't know. Well, we now have a range Sorry. of emojis to express yeah. our, our Love l- likiness to towards e- e- Eggplant. Eggplant. <laughs> yeah. Smiling turd. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Dancing yeah. princesses, as yeah. they say in this. Dancing yeah. princess emoji. Actually, I mean, this film... Got off to a bad start for me because there's an awful lot of vocalizing of, of uh, hashtags and and emojis. It all makes sense in the course of the film, but it's that sort of thing actually. When people actually speak like that in ordinary social intercourse in the <laughs> flesh, I want to harm them. Um, hashtag whoa! I, yeah. <laughs> hashtag fail. Yeah. <laughs> I don't harm them. I, I don't. I'd like to make. Clear. I do radio shows. With them. I do. Yes, um, but uh, you know, this young woman and her relationship to Instagram is, is sort of exemplary of what's actually, I think, a very real problem for an awful lot of people that they are so driven to seek uh, that uh, approval, that affirmation from people they don't know who are dispersed all across the globe um, that uh, it. In the case here of someone who's actually a little bit unhinged to begin with, they they think to actually seek out someone in person who has engaged with them, especially when they're at a very vulnerable point in their life, and suddenly um, able to enact some of that white privilege and suddenly jet off to, uh, was it Venice Beach, uh, California, and um, start stalking someone. In fact, single white female gets an explicit name drop in this film. And it, it is very much that, but in a, for, for millennials, I suppose, and it made me extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> this is it's really sort of a cringe thriller. Is that a good term, I think, for something like this? I think, yeah, I think that's good because um, a single white female is definitely the, as you said, it's, it was refer- directly referenced, but it is the film. I mean, it, the single white female is the 90s film, the 90s version, the 90s thriller version. Um, that was the zeitgeist then, this is the zeitgeist now. So this Ingrid Goes West is very much, it's, um, it's, uh, new millennial, you know, contemporary, I guess you could call it. Because it is, I found this to be a very pleasant, scary surprise, <laughs> this film. I didn't expect to like it quite as much. And I think it's, it didn't feel terribly new. I, I could see where the story was going to go, um, even though we've made, uh, made it clear we won't say what it what happens, but I could see it. Um, that's not a problem. Uh, I've seen other films that are sort of similar to it in this sort of ironic wink wink nudge nudge look how self-aware we are way but what I really liked about this was that the characters were really really uh, nuanced and varied like there was except for I think um, Magnuson's character of Nikki that there were elements of likability and hateability about all of them Um, I think that was probably the genius of it because it means we can all see ourselves somewhere in there anyone who's used social media will see themselves in there and it's absolutely horrifying. I think um, everybody I know who recommended this film or, or who has, has seen this film or who wants to see this film, the big selling card is, is Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, she's I excellent. I haven't seen Parks and Recreation um, and I understand that that's quite the hook. Yes. So this was my first exposure to her. I mean, not. I don't mean like I don't mean like the untamed exposure. Like this is the first <laughs> time I saw her in a movie. There's no um, sex squids in this film, no, people. No, none, none. And she's extraordinary. She has such presence. She's great. Um, and it's, I mean, I, it's funny that you guys say thriller because I didn't feel any of those aspects at all. I just felt 
this sort of gut, like just aching, tummy ache tragedy watching this film unfold. I mean, it has a little bit of that, you know, post the office or, um, you know, that kind of embarrassment humour. Mm. Um, Cringe thriller. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. yeah. But I, to me it was just the sadness and the, of this film that was just so overwhelming. But um, Elizabeth Olsen, I mean, like yeah. you said, I think the cast, I mean, the, the, I think this – with a different director, and I was really surprised that this was a feature debut. This guy's made some shorts and things b- before, yeah, but solid. he's mostly a writer. But, yeah, like for a feature debut, mm. this is really strong. I mean, the, in anybody else's hands, it could almost feel like, you know, with a different cast, it could feel like a TV movie, like a kind of social issues film. <laughs> well, for um, a film about narcissism to some extent, um, I mean, certainly got some really vapid characters and that, and their whole business of interacting with the world, well, at least you know, the two main characters, let's say, is through Instagram, while others uh, are on the periphery of that with varying attitudes towards it. But one of the other main characters is a screenwriter, which seems quite perfect, really, for a screenwriter who's just become a director. I mean, he's mirroring himself through a, actually the most sympathetic character in the whole film, the one who's most level-headed, and yet who perhaps isn't as level-headed as all that as it turns out because of a, a, a relationship, which was the one thing I struggled with a bit in this film, with his tenant, which is um, young Aubrey Plaza's character's name, which is... Uh, Ingrid Goes West. Ingrid. Yeah, that's Ingrid why Ingrid. Goes West. Her name is actually Ingrid yeah. Goes West. Or, yeah. That's not that's not no. the action of the film. That's her full name. Or Olga. It's hyphenated. Or Olga. She's yes, yes, she's <laughs> relentlessly Olga through um, that, yeah, that, that ghastly brother. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, just, I just found this so sad. I know that there was kind of humour in it. Um, I... Yeah, I don't think I was struck by this as much of, as other people. I don't have anything particularly negative to say about it, but I wouldn't say that it it will stay with me. Mm, um, I think it's more than an, it's more than an aeroplane film, um, and I think that is precisely because of the cast and the quality of the script and the quality of the direction. Also, the fact that there's a dog called Rothko. Yes, <laughs> one of my favourite artists. It's like okay, you get extra points because you've got a dog called Rothko. There was. Um, it is a very much a Hollywood kids film, though. I mean, with Elizabeth Olsen, but she's a younger um, sibling, isn't she? Of the yeah, Olsen she's a twins. rocket. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's so good. And uh, Wyatt Russell being the son of Kurt and Goldie. I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah. And also um, O'Shea Jackson Jr. being the son of the Cube, Ice Cube. So um, I thought that was interesting, playing on this sort of people desperate for stardom when you've got these Hollywood kids. And also Wyatt Russell played, um, was in one of the, the better episodes I felt of the third season of Black Mirror. Um, Char- it's Charlie Brooker, isn't it? That did that. It was, um, and he played a character. Probably people will know it. Where um, he was uh, um, a tourist or a backpacker through England. And he was. He decided to take a gig as a games tester, and his job was the game. The game was uh, tapping into your actual fears, and it was about how that went wrong. So essentially, my, he's my, also my start- actual fears are watching Black Mirror. Black so Mirror. That's kind of Well, so that was, um, you know, what was a social media, though, series, wasn't it? So, you know, White Russell seems to can't get away from that. (laughs) Although I find him to be incredibly likeable, same with O'Shea Jackson uh, Jr. in this. So, and even Aubrey Plaza, I mean, despite the fact that, you know, really this is a film about varying levels of mental illness, um, she has her likeable trait. She's not a totally reprehensible character. I was going to say it reminded me of, but I think that that actually implies that I think this film is better than it is. And I don't mean to dismiss the film. A lot of this film feels in many ways, um, particularly in the complexity of her character and her relationships, um, 
with Elizabeth Olsen's Taylor, but especially the ending. I kept having little tiny flashbacks to the classic Bette Davis film, All About Eve. Yes. This really feels like such a contemporary retelling of All About Eve. Yeah, somebody insinuating themselves into uh, an aspirational community and uh, it not necessarily going, well, yes, spot on. I'm really glad you said that because I was thinking that watching it, I went... Even though they're all totally, while we, Cerise and I are saying thriller, I don't think it is a thriller. I think it would have been a thriller in the 90s. It would have been single wife, female. Mm-hmm. Then we go back another couple of generations, it would have been all about, all about Eve. Eve. Sort of, um, yeah. Almost, a, I mean, you wouldn't call, I mean, you wouldn't call Ingrid Goes West a melodrama. No. But it's kind of riffing on, yeah. on all of this sort of stuff. But the, I mean, I'm absolutely not going to give the ending of this film away, but it left me feeling the same way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even call the endings of these two films comparable. Um, so I don't raise that as a spoiler but um the intensity of and the the kind of darkness of where these Mm. films go um and there's a sense of inevitability i think in both of these films that i just found so sad the king of comedy a hint of the king of comedy yeah there is Mm. a bit of that too yes without masha the wonderful my queen sandra bernhard Mm. (laughs) one of my favorite favorite performances in a scorsese film now i'm really going off topic this 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 film also had some great music in it it wasn't necessarily music of the now this generation so i thought that was quite clever it was subtle it was woven in a way nothing was so heavy-handed in it that's what i really liked about it uh, obsession was a bit oh yeah that's true gimme yeah (laughs) but still not an 80s tune you know and emotion I think you'll find. Yeah. I, know, Thank you. I, I don't know my eight times tables, but I know all the lyrics to Obsession by An Emotion. I'm not going to recite them here. Three. Triple. Funeral Parade of Roses is the last film we'll look at tonight, but my word by no means is it the least. Acme are currently playing the 4K restoration of this film that's been doing the rounds of international film festivals and the like recently, adding some much-needed restorative love to a film that already knocks it out of the ballpark in terms of filmmaking style as much as its audacious plotline. The film explores queer culture in late 1960s Shinjuku in Japan and brings together experimental and documentary aspects with the kind of art cinema, I guess, coming out of Europe, particularly France during this period, particularly the off-sighted films of uh, Jean-Luc Godard um, and Jonas Mikas is also, I think, directly referenced in this film, although he's not French. That's not a, really. I think that's a clumsy a, a Lithuanian, segue, isn't it? A Lithuanian emigre, I think. A Lithuanian emigre. You said that so. Can you say it again? Lithuanian emigre. Let's just talk about Jonas <laughs> Mekas. That's beautiful. We're not going to talk about that. Funeral Parade of Roses stars legendary Japanese gay singer and actor Peter, who also appeared in Akira Kurosawa's Ran that we discussed a few months back, as trans character Eddie, who is having an affair with Gonda, played by Yoshi Sukiya, on the sly. Um, Trying to keep out of the view of Jimmy's, uh, of Jimmy, of Gonda's other <laughs> lover, Leda, played by Asama Ogasawa. There are traces of a storyline in here, but the director goes out of his way to confront us, not only with disorienting flashbacks of Eddie's traumatic childhood, but with the cinematic apparatus itself fully exposed as we see the film we're watching 
or one like it effectively being made, demanding we ask questions about representation itself. This, as you may have (laughs) guessed from my clumsy little introduction here, is a difficult film to summarise in two minutes. But in short, this is a queer punk pop art cinematic Oedipus from just the wonderful, (laughs) wonderful, 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 wonderful period of Japanese filmmaking. This was made a couple of years after Hiroshi Teshigahara's Face of Another, which from 1966, which played Myth. Myth. These are two of my favourite Japanese films of all time. They just do things that I've, I've never seen other films do. I'm excited excited to be talking about this and to prove that point I'm going to shut up what did you guys think of this <laughs> well I mean I loved it I mean, it's um it's it, it's of a it's certainly of an era of Japanese filmmaking a new wave uh which uh, also encompassed encompassed figures like Seijin Suzuki who I wage we might yet uh, cover a bunch mm. of his stuff is yeah, up on stand at the moment weeks mm. yes. because there's opera. also some films of his coming up at the Japanese film festival mm-hmm. On 35mm free screenings <gasps> even. Oh, my so, word. So, yes, very exciting. The pop art uh, aspect of all of this is is very much to the fore. But this is such a queer film, which is what makes it so distinctive amongst a, a, a huge array of films that came out of Japan at that time, made by independent filmmakers, actually sort of film societies, collaborative groups, uh, operating quite a remove from the famous Japanese studio system that had, um, in fact, nurtured some of them. And it, it is such a, a treasure trove of film technique and mashups of, of documentary and uh, actual footage um, with uh, investigations into the very form. I mean, the characters in this film, such as they are, are actually, or well, the actors playing them are interrogated once in a while about you know, why they want, you know, what, what, how they relate to their characters. I mean, there's everything that this film is operating in a bit of a removed to itself. It's, it's, it's yeah, as you say, Alex, hugely about uh, representation. There's an awful lot of play with mirrors, mm-hmm. um, an awful lot of play with just uh, look, looking at narcissism in a quite different way to uh, Ingrid Goes West did. But there's something quite common to experimental early queer cinema where characters are often quite spellbound by their reflection and, and it takes some time out to ponder it as if they can scarcely believe they're able to be who they wish to be. And um, I still find that extremely captivating and affecting, actually. And I'm reminded of queer cinema that was springing up in other experimental forms elsewhere in the world around this time. And I was especially thinking of Jack Smith's seminal film, Flaming Creatures, uh, which, which is actually nuttier than this it should be said, though that's saying something, uh, and was extremely controversial. It was made about five years earlier, and that has a whole lot of uh, trans characters swanning about, uh, applying uh, makeup and and frolicking and rolling all over one another, whereas this actually is set very much in an urban environment. But it, it, in, in a way that seemed to actually call to mind for me lots of other experimental filmmakers like Shirley Clark, mm. you know, Cityscapes in this film. Absolutely. And um, uh, Jonas Mikas, as you mentioned, gets name-checked. He, he was a very diaristic filmmaker, very much about the moment and capturing it. And we see these amazing scenes. Of, it looks like some sort of activist activity on the streets of Tokyo. Mm. I'm not quite sure exactly what was yeah. being protested or how. Do we... we, we it's never, it's, Yeah, we never really know. Is it they're like they're, they're carrying something and they've got sort of um, doctors, uh, surgeon masks over their faces? Yeah, since like it's that. some sort of countercultural action. Mm. I'm not quite sure what it signifies. What it is. But yeah. it's pretty transfixing. Mm. Everything in this film is transfixing and mm. the characters are transfixed by themselves the actors playing them are transfixed by their own acting as others 
and but also as themselves, I think it's just um, yeah, I, uh, all the levels. And it's so beautiful. I don't think that we can underplay yeah, this sort exquisite. of this experimental component that we're talking about. It doesn't just come through as narrative chaos, and I don't think it is chaos. But it's you know it's disjointed. If you're used to you know American mainstream cinema, I think that you might find this a little disjointed. I oh, think yeah. it's fair to say, but um, it's not a bad. It's thing. just a beautiful <laughs> film. I mean, they're, they're just yeah. to look at just just I mean, this idea of, of of vision and looking and and the 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 spectacle as well as the spectator like all of these these things that you've raised Cerise just the you know that the I love these depths between you know moving in and out of the digesis of the film world you know we go into the story but then we're pulled out of the story but we're also pulled into these surfaces and then kind of pushed out there's this recurring image I think of like a cigarette burning through a Mm. photograph Mm. um it's so you know this Mm. it's just so jolting in where that places you it's like oh that's really pretty but what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think this. Well, this is definitely art cinema, as you say. It's not a conventional uh, narrative storyline. So if people would go into that, that would disappoint. Go into it expecting that, that would disappoint them. Um, it's certain. You could say that. I think there's a there's. There's a moment where you could say this is this is style over substance, but it's not. It's very highly stylistic. But then, especially once the film concludes, and it is a film that really comes together in its entirety, you realise no, no, this isn't. This is style. This is a lot of the style. style is, the style is the substance. Is the substance. It's the medium. Yes. Is the message exactly. The medium is the massage. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> Chucking a bit so, of a Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Gee, we're deep tonight, aren't we? Sex squids and Marshall, Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan. That's my my metal band. (laughs) It's interesting, um, you know, if you even read a little synopsis of this film, everyone, it seems to always start with uh, that it's the film that influenced um, Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, which I find um, interesting because I don't actually see that as much in this film for some reason. That's one of those really vague, I think it's like Kubrick and Girlfriends, Um, you know, like it's one of those things that's all Kubrick really liked it or Kubrick was inspired. It's like, you know what, this film stands by itself. It doesn't need this. Like, no, not dissing Kubrick, but it doesn't need this vague kind of justification. It seems you know like I mean? it, it's it like does you know what this is very, an amazing film. It, yeah, it does seem very, very vague to me. Um, that justification. In fact, in in some of the imagery, and it's a very different film to Polanski's Repulsion, but in some of the imagery, I feel it's closer to Repulsion, for example. Um, but I especially like. I look. I'm I'm a sucker for style in cinema, and I so enjoyed those um, party scenes hmm. with the '60s Just dancing. Just these like these go go dancing freakouts. <laughs> Scenes are just like I could watch. I could watch like footage of of late sixties go go dancing Shinjuku nightclubs <laughs> yes. forever. Like no Beat, more movies. Beaten. If there's Japanese no more movies, if, if Hollywood looks like it's collapsing, like it's like it appears to be, that's fine. I'm just going to watch those scenes like a gif on a loop yes. for the next fifty years. That's fine. And then and then as you said in the intro, Alex, when I realised that that uh, that was Peter who played um, uh, the full character in um, Kurosawa's Ran, I kind of became so obsessed with him uh, he's and uh, that because that full character was really 
really physical, more physical than the, this role of Eddie in um, in Funeral Parade of Roses. Um, and I, I just, it was mesmerised with that ponytail he had in Ran, and he kept on sort of flicking it around. Um, he was like an acrobat in Ran. He like was. He was really much or very physical. And then you think that film was twenty years after this film as well. I think it makes you realise how young he was in in playing this role. And incredibly captivating. I mean, it was a very intrusive camera. It's right up on him playing this, you know, trans role. But, you know, so it was really, you know, scrutinising him, scrutinising those eyelashes, those amazing 60s eyelashes and showing from I would, him dressing up. I want those up. eyelashes so badly, like but so badly. That, that makeup was oh done so God. well. I was jealous. I can't do eye makeup. So I was really jealous. If you get like cat's eye <laughs> eyeliner envy, this is not yeah, the film no, for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it was going from um, showing him as the, the the boy character from that this whole Oedipal story, which is at the at the heartbeat of it, and everyone does know the story of Oedipus Rex. So it's, I think there's even posters of Pasolini's Oedipus Rex. In I a, think in there a is yes, in this film, yes. like a whole wall of them. It's there a, is really lovely. It's interesting, like thinking about the um, the Untamed is still that we the, the Untamed the Amat Escalante film that we spoke about earlier that hasn't got distribution in Mexico. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like that that isn't you can't watch that in Mexico wow. um, and so that's this is 2017 and then you think about what this film was doing in Japan in 1969 oh, and it's, it's quite it's quite you know we we don't need the clockwork orange link and I think that no. this is a film that's influenced a lot of other films too like not not just in queer cinema um, there's an amazing film by a Japanese she's actually a fashion photographer called Mika Ninagawa mm-hmm. um, she made one of my favorite recent Japanese horror films called Helter Skelter in 2012 um, she's just an extraordinary visual stylist um, and that film is just a love letter to to especially the ending of um, Funeral Parade of roses but i think that aesthetic is so embedded in in so much japanese visual culture um even if it's not a direct reference mm. um, the lobster too now i come to think of it really? yes mm. yes probably in exactly the same yeah. way yep. yeah 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 it's, it's interesting because even this is film is in black and white um yet it's not a, a sort of it's not a uniform black and white film it actually has uh, lots of varying dev, um, levels of black and white it goes from this really oversaturated look which is in that remarkable opening love sequence that's really hypnotic Stunning. and beautiful. It, isn't yeah. it amazing so beautiful yeah. and it is yeah. that really affective sensory thing yeah. that you were talking about before Sari. it's like you can feel the and where you see eddie's eyes in that with that really oversaturation to have those amazing you know cat's eyes with the thick lashes they really pop on oh, screen the image is even solarized on occasion yeah, it is. And yeah. It, yeah. again looks amazing and other times quite conventional but stunning black and white cinematographer utilising uh, angles straight out of the expressionist textbook, amazing high angles looking down onto the action immediately setting me on edge, uh, even though I know that there's you know, really not that thicker narrative to really try to adhere to, but still suddenly think, no, bad things are going to happen. We're looking at the action from an uncomfortable angle. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, this is just a, a, an extraordinary film to have the opportunity to see. Um, I think so. Bouncy, and and think. how many? There's only a few screenings. Yeah, isn't there? yeah. The, yeah. The 4K restoration of Funeral Parade of Roses is now screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and I recommend it. I'm sure you agree. Absolutely. People should get right onto that. Oh yes. Uh, we also tonight talked about Ingrid Goes West, which is on limited release uh, through Rialto, 
and The Untamed is distributed by Madman Entertainment and is currently screening at Acme. And again, I would add to this a reminder of that it's there's a rare chance to see Zalowski's possession in a double bill with The Untamed on November the 4th and 7th. Check the Acme website for more details. That is Plato's K for tonight. Thank you, Emma and Cerise. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> and Cerise. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> and Carl. Yes, thank you to Carl Chapman and Faith Everard behind the scenes. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.